This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. We have taken you on the journey of the great American, sometimes Canadian, Kill Billy here on season 15 of the Seeking Human Victims podcast. It started in the South. That's where you would expect to find a Kill Billy, but the Kill Billies have gone all over. We've been to Canada, we've been to New Jersey, we've been to Louisiana, we met some Cajun Kill Billies, and now. We're going up to the Pacific Northwest, where there's a lot of real weird motherfuckers. And this movie is about those weird motherfuckers that live secluded in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm talking about Oregon, and I'm talking about Just Before Dawn from 1981. Welcome to Seeking Human Victims Season 15, Kill Billy's. I am your host, the maniacal minister of the occult, the devil you know, the original motherfucker, the Rev, Dan Wilson, and I am here with my team of frolicking campers, Dreamboat Annie. I saw you naked in the lake, but I didn't tell Paul. He don't like it. (laughs) God damn it. And returning to the show, always glad to have him, a fountain of knowledge, wit, charm, and charisma, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Griswold. What about you? Did you like it? Oh, shit. And rounded it out, the one, the only, the great Mooji. Get off this land. You got no business here. Skadoot. <laughs> you bring the devil. Oh, shit. Yeah, I never heard of this fucking movie uh, before this season. It was one, you know, that I dug up in the research. Of Kill Billy films and other fairly low budget Kill Billy film from the early 80s. Never seen it, never heard of it. Had to kind of dig for it to f- even find where to watch it. So I don't know. What about you guys? I've seen the name of the movie on like some lists of like forgotten slashers, but I definitely never seen it before. Uh, 
I feel like I have a distant memory of seeing the box somewhere in a video store at some point in my life. But other than that, probably like Muji, I, maybe it pops up on a list every few years, but I've never seen it. Um, I obviously have never seen it. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to throw out the other quotes that I've written down because they were so great. The raccoon stole some of my makeup. Um, followed by, you mean you didn't come back with raccoon wearing false eyelashes? <laughs> yeah. This one was, it was kind of a surprise. Um, I, I didn't expect much out of it. And it, uh, it was more than that. But we'll talk more about that. Um, yeah, I, I had no familiarity with it whatsoever. Totally went in blind. Like I said, you know, we it, it was a journey to even locate it. So uh, this is one where we all kind of went in a little blind. And we'll see how that affected our experience later in the show. But before we dig on into all of those gory details, we're going to kick it to our sponsor for another musical guest. That's our pals over at Horror Pain Gore Death Productions. That's HorrorPainGoreDeath.com, the heaviest record label in metal, heavier than elephant tits, as our old pal Grizz would say. Uh, and so tonight they bring us another musical guest. They've been on the show before, but they were so heavy. We wanted to bring another track by them. So once again, back on the show, Deeds of Flesh from the originally released 1996 album from Repulse Records, Trading Pieces. Again, it says they were true innovators of violence and pioneers of brutal technical death metal. And that Trading Pieces still stands out as one of the most creative, unique, and vicious releases of the 90s that is worthy of repeat listens. Pushing the limits of technicality and brutality, Deeds of Flesh unleash a masterpiece of twisted, pummeling, blasting, and slamming savagery that is a complex, technical, and maddening, ultra-guttural, deranged vocals, razor-sharp, relentless riffs, frantic, chaotic bass, and bone-crushing, inhuman drumming, and that makes Trading Pieces a sinister slab of death metal perfection. This officially licensed reissue features an all-new layout and is dedicated to Deeds of Flesh founder Eric Lindmark. Rest in power for fans of Broken Hope, Cannibal Corpse, Cryptopsy, Dying Fetus, Defeated Sanity, Devourment, Disgorge, Gore Guts, Immolation, Internal Bleeding, Pyrexia, and Suffocation. Here is Deeds of Flesh. With yet another track off of Trading Pieces, this is Chunks in the Shower.
The Coroner's Report. Alright, so, just before dawn, 1981, a group of campers going up to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, another thing of like staking the claim on property. He had a deed. Uh, a, the group of campers go up to this secluded area up on the mountain uh, looking for property they allegedly own only to meet some very uh, unhappy locals who don't want them there and start killing them one by one. Uh, it's a familiar refrain this season, but the director is a guy named Jeff Lieberman. He is a guy who is familiar to horror fans. You'll know why. Uh, Lieberman was born in 1947 in Brooklyn. He made his feature film debut as the writer and director of the infamous nature horror film Squirm from 1976 about earthworms inundating a small southern town and wreaking havoc. His following film, Blue Sunshine from 1978, follows a series of murders in L.A. connected to the use of LSD. And then Blue Sunshine was a big hit at Cannes, as well as the London and Edinburgh International Film Festivals. Uh, in 1981, he wrote and directed this film, and uh, he goes on to write and direct in 1988 a movie called Remote Control. And he also wrote the screenplay for Never Ending Story 3. And then he comes back to horror from, with a movie that I actually kind of fucking love. Uh, from 2004, a great Halloween horror film called Satan's Little Helper that he directed. Uh, so, you know, this is a guy who's been out in the fucking trenches here for decades giving us great indie horror. So shout out to Jeff Lieberman, first of all. And he is the man that brings us just before dawn. The original script for this actually came from a dude named Jonas Middleton, also known as Joseph Middleton, and it was titled The Tennessee Mountain Murders. So originally it did not take place in Oregon. Uh, and it was later retitled The Last Ritual, and it had heavy religious themes behind the twin killer's motives. This sounds like a horror film Grizz and I may have wrote in high school. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, I mean, shit, I'd better see that. <laughs> and uh, Lieberman got a hold of the script, and he thought, those elements were awful and did not work. So it was no longer placed in Tennessee. It was no longer about these religious motives. Uh, also, the original script included a sixth camper named Eileen and a different fate for Megan, which entailed her being tossed to her death over a cliff. Um, it also included a climax involving Connie being forced to handle rattlesnakes by the inbred villains before becoming one of their wives. Uh, this version of the script also had more involvement from the Logan family, who were part of the scheme. Uh, in the final version, of course, they are not. They are the family of uh, simple hillbilly folk, but, uh, you know, they're just trying to really protect themselves and their own. 
Uh, <laughs> Lieberman rigorously rewrites this screenplay from page one by himself to eliminate all of the religious overtones, and he wants to put it in more of a thriller-based plot, heavily influenced by what? What, ladies and germs, what? Deliverance. <laughs> what else? But we're almost a decade out of deliverance at this point. So the deliverance fever ripoff film that we've discovered a number of here this season I wouldn't consider this one of those. This is very much, I mean, he, he might have had all the Deliverance-inspired designs he wanted on this film. It really comes off like a fucking 1981 slasher. And 81, definitely uh, one of the years of the slasher. So many fucking amazing slasher films came out in 81. Maybe had this come out in a different year, maybe it had been more known. Maybe we would have heard of it before. <laughs> But still, the deliverance theme is there. I mean, yeah, go down the checklist. You can literally, as the movie progresses, go, all right, step one, step two, step three, here we go. Yep, like, oh, George Kennedy warned you not to go. So, you know, you got your old man warning there, even though uh, George Kennedy was pretty young for George Kennedy, still an older gent then. <laughs> but you got that and, and so much more. And it did. It started delving over into some slasher teams because, you know, when they would get promiscuous and shit, bad things would start to happen as well. So. That was a pretty cool merging of those worlds of horror. Uh, the music was done by Brad Fidel. We've talked about him multiple times on this show. You go back to the Terminator 2 episode, which is a great bonus episode that you can get exclusively on patreon.com slash OG scare. It's right there in the archives as well as uh, the Serpent and the Rainbow episode back in the Wes Craven Terror Timeline, one of the great composers of his era. I mean, he did Fright Night, Fright Night 2, Johnny Mnemonic, uh, and, and, you know, just a whole lot more. Just fucking legend there. He retired from scoring films in the late 90s, now pretty much creates original music. But the eerie whistling which is kind of part of the beginning setup of the film as when it's heard throughout. That is a reference to the rescue whistle that Warren carries in the film. According to Fido, uh, many of the ominous sounds in the score were actually just electronically altered audio clips of him vocalizing droning noises. So you got a little experimental with this one. Uh, but I think the music really works. I think it's one of the stronger elements. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, you've already used the word strong, so I'll have to dig out my thesaurus. But I would say, you know, I dug the movie, but this soundtrack is almost too good for it. Uh, you know, I was thinking as I was watching it, it brought to mind like a lot of those uh, Warner Herzog soundtracks from the band uh, Popol Vuh in the 70s. So really good kind of layered synthy sounds throughout. Just a uh, great atmosphere. 
Yeah, agreed. It was very much, uh, very much placed it as an early 80s slasher in the best way. You know, all of the soundtracks with the synth stuff now tries to emulate those carpenter sounds and those those early 80s and late 70s horror soundtrack vibes. And I mean, this is the authentic original thing here by uh, one of the great composers. I mean, he created the fucking Terminator 2 theme. Like, (laughs) come on. And uh, cinematography was done by Dean and Joel King. And let's talk about the cast. (laughs) What's so fucking funny? Just... (laughs) Here's your cinematographers, Dean and Joel King. Well, I wanted to give them a shout out, but I didn't have any information on them. They no, didn't have profiles. I'm, I'm not saying you did. It's just funny. You're like, all right, that bye. Yes. It was, I, okay, I mean, could, go ahead, Moochie. These are the cinematographers. What we know about them is that they shot a movie. So moving on to the cast. They shot at least one. It was this one. They may or may not be related. They do Probably have the brothers. Same last name. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna create a head cannon and say they're brothers. Maybe they're twins. They were brought in because they specialize in being twins. <laughs> they they specialized in shooting twins. <laughs> Oh, God damn it. But I mean, the cinematography was fine. If, you know, if you want to say something about him, like it, it was good. Uh, you know, there was nothing that like blew me away about it, but it was it was totally adequate. Yeah, not quite to deliverance or rituals level, but you still get some some really good landscapes. And, it, you know, I think it, they did well in setting the tone for the movie, so. I got to tell you, these King twins, they took their cameras, they pointed them at the forest, they recorded it. Um, I couldn't find anything else about Dean King, but it looks like Joel King, if it's the same person, um, filmed Graffiti Bridge, Prince's lesser known 1990 movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, Prince was, Prince was all like, Dean. Your services are no longer needed. <laughs> Fucking A. We're already off the goddamn rails here. I so can't even promise that's the same Joel King, so. Hey, who knows? Uh, it says his early career included filming TV classics like Batman Lost in Space and The Waltons. So probably. I mean, that Can sounds we- like it. Giving the credits of someone who may or may not have been a part of this movie. That's what this podcast is all about. Carrie <laughs> MacArthur. I mean, looks like this. Maybe he doesn't want anyone to know that he was involved with it. That's possible as well. So let's talk about the cast. We had Deborah Benson as Constance. Uh, she was not known for a lot of credits. She was in this film. 
And she was in two films that were named dates. She was in a film from 1977 called September 30th, 1955. And then another film in 1979 called 1941. What the fuck? 1941 is the uh, Steven Spielberg movie that only made triple its budget back, so it wasn't considered a Steven Spielberg movie. But I like that movie, and I totally don't remember her. I think I saw it in IMDb. She was like a background dancing girl in that or something. Yeah, it was a very... Uh, she she was even kind of hard to track down. I had to go straight... There was an IMDb bio for her, but like no Wikipedia page or anything like that, and that's all that was on it for credits. So... But I guess and you can then, say, you know, sorry. Oh, go ahead. I guess you can say, you know, she fulfilled her role. She was the blonde girl in shorty shorts and she survived. But, you know, kind of a twist. She didn't really have a man help her. So. No, she ended up being awesome at the fucking end. Yeah, that was like the greatest shit. Like, it was so, I was like, yes, fucking yes, I'm doing that. Like, that's going in the repertoire. Like, that's. Put your whole fucking arm down his throat. Choke the motherfucker. Um, also, I can confirm that that was the correct Jill King. <laughs> yeah, but I thought she, uh, you know, with that, that was kind of different for its time. But I guess we'll talk more about that later. But yeah, I thought she did a, a passable job. So see, it's weird that you didn't really see her resurface anywhere. Yeah, I mean, she ends up, like, you know, the the movie, it really starts to pick up there at the end, and she's a big part of that, that final scene where she has to fight him off, and just, like, she kind of goes fucking crazy, I think by the time she's put the makeup on, she's done, flew the cuckoo's nest, and don't give a fuck anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that was like, it got real weird there at the very end where like both of them, her and her boyfriend, both like seemed like they had just kind of gone nuts. And um, I like to bring up the fact that um, she uh, seems like she got crushed by a tree, but it didn't really hurt her at all. <laughs> yes, yeah, you know, sold the fuck out of that tree yes. falling on her. <laughs> Yeah, she fell from what looked to be at least like 15 to 20 feet in the air, and the tree fell directly on her, and she popped right the fuck up. (laughs) I mean, it looked like that hurt for real. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, we salute you, Deborah Benson. You didn't show up in much else, but you fucking rocked it here. And then uh, we had Greg Henry as Warren. He's best known for his performance as serial killer Dennis Rader in the made-for-TV film The Hunt for the BTK Killer. And uh, he's known for playing heavies in various films such as Payback in 1999 and Brian De Palma's Body Double from 1984, the latter of whom he would go on to 
work with frequently acting in six De Palma films over the years. He's also been featured in over 75 television shows, including The Riches, Firefly, Gilmore Girls, 24, Airwolf, CSI, Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, In the Heat of the Night, L.A. Law, Falcon Crest, Designing Women, Moonlining, Magnum P.I., Rich Man, Poor Man, The Mentalist, Castle, Glee, Burn Notice, and Breakout Kings, and what are the fucking odds that In the Heat of the Night would get put over in two weeks in a row? I'm not gonna do it. God damn it! I was hoping you would. We were we were all waiting for you. In the heat of the night. Thank you. <laughs> Give the people what they want. <sighs> oh, yeah, there's more. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, if there's more, I'll, I I can wait. Oh, yeah, he's in a few more credits. He was uh, Hugh Panetta in the FX TV show The Riches. He was on White Collar. Uh, he was in The Killing in 2014. He was in Guardians of the Galaxy as Peter Quill's grandfather. Uh, he also appeared in the sh AMC show Hell on Wheels and the following and portrayed the title role of Julius Caesar in 2017, Shakespeare in the Park in New York City. Now, that's all. What were you going to say about him, Grizz? I was going to say, uh, maybe it's just it's that good of an acting job, but, you know, you come to hate the character by the end because he kind of just, you know, loses his shit and goes into the fetal position while his girlfriend puts on some caramel cream lipstick and busts some shit up. But, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it was, you know, maybe it's because the, the slasher roles weren't, like, completely established, but it's kind of a, I don't know, kind of a backseat beta type, so, I don't know. I guess it was a passable enough job. I don't know if I was convinced he was a an experienced climber or not, but. Yeah, he was a real but... bitch. There, yeah, he really was. I mean, he had the knife on the side of his belt, and he's just kind of sitting there like, oh, no, my vest is cut. I don't even see any blood at the, coming out of the vest. Like, I got a boo-boo. This 400-pound guy's molesting my girlfriend, but... He literally sat there with a poo-poo face. <laughs> and, like, did nothing. Just watched. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You don't even try to get up? Like, lame. That's why you grew up yeah, to man. be Logan Huntsberger's dad. <laughs> That's a uh, the big guy like had her in like a like shoot bear hug, and like she did like the whole fucking cell where she went out. Like it could have only been like better if like somebody would have ran out of the woods and like raised her hand twice before on the third one she started pumping her fist. Because, I mean, she was, like, out, out, and then he just still sat there and did nothing. <laughs> but it's okay. She didn't need his ass. No, she shoved her whole last fist down that motherfucker's throat. 
She was up to her elbows by, by the end of it, you know. I mean, usually a good Captain Kirk chop to the neck would have done it, but. Yeah, that shit was amazing. <laughs> and then we had Chris Lemon as Jonathan, son of acting legend Jack Lemon. Uh, Chris himself appeared in numerous stage productions, including the West Coast tour of Barefoot in the Park. Uh, and he also portrayed Richard Phillips in two situation comedies, Duet and Open House. Uh, and he co-starred as Martin Brew Brewbaker in the television series Thunder in Paradise, which starred pro wrestling legend Hulk Hogan. Do I have to call him disgraced pro wrestling legend? No. <laughs> I think it's I think it's implied. Uh, the holster. Do you remember Muji? God damn it. Thunder in Paradise. A little bit of thunder in paradise. Yeah, of course I do. He still <laughs> watches it on the regular. That's like Wednesday night viewing. Yeah, I mean, that show was like just a complete piece of shit, but. You know, we were so young enough to where it was just cool because Hulk Hogan was in it because that was still when Hulk Hogan was, you know, he was the man no strings attached back then. You know, <laughs> it was like we didn't know that was that was back before we knew everybody's personal shit. So did I just understand you that that was Chris Lemon in Thunder in Paradise? Yes, sir. And Jack Lemon let his son do that. <laughs> I mean, was there a falling out? Did they have a falling out at some point over his career? Or, I mean, I guess you could never <laughs> accuse him of like, you know, you know who my dad is. It's like, you know, I guess he he earned his own way, huh? <laughs> yeah, I guess he had to. If that was the case. If he was chasing villains with AK-47s on jet skis with Hulk Hogan and Brutus Beefcake. You know, the old Hulkster was like just such a terrible actor that it's like nobody got a chance again for a while. You know what I'm saying? Like, now it's like not weird. It's like, you know. The Rock's like maybe the most famous guy in the whole world that's an actor. And like Batista and John Cena are pretty good now. But like Hogan was so bad at it that there was like a time where like you could never imagine. Like, no, nah, it just it, it doesn't translate. <laughs> like like wrestlers, you know, you've seen Roddy Piper was pretty good, but Hogan was so bad that you're like, nah, 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 nah. These these guys are not gonna be good actors. <laughs> you fucked it up for a whole generation. <laughs> Grizz might be interested to know that Chris Lemon appeared in three films with his father, and that would be Airport 77, That's Life, and Dad from 1989. Oh, Airport 77. I'm sorry. He was supposed to star in a movie called Publicity Stunt. With Joel's directed by Joel Zwick, but they had a terrible falling out, which resulted in a series of lawsuits that spanned a decade. It was finally settled when Zwick agreed to pay $1.7 million for the highly controversial script. 
It's never made the light of day. I will say, if anybody's curious, because I'm sure there's some Jack Lemmon fans listening to this podcast, but if you look them up, they Jack Lemmon and Chris Lemmon look exactly alike in their younger years, so it's a nice bit of trivia for you there. Speaking of their relationship, Lemon adapted a tribute to his father, a twist of Lemon, to the stage in 2015. The show, which he's performed all around the United States, follows the relationship between he and his father as seen through his father's eyes. So, I guess old Jack was proud of him after all. I don't know, that seems a little weird. He's like, I'm going to write about my relationship with my dad from the perspective of my dad. How would you know? Like, that's so uh, well, weird. I guarantee you his dad was proud when he saw the episode of Thunder in Paradise that uh, guest starred Sting as Hammerhead McCall. I bet you was proud as fuck when that happened. Like, oh, there's old Hammerhead McCall. They should have been. I don't know how that one, man. The show goes. You're a fucking disappointment. The end. (laughs) Ouch. Chris Lemon, everybody. Getting getting a roasting. It's all right, Chris. We love you. But goddamn. Jamie Rose as Megan. She had made her feature film debut here. And she went on to have supporting roles in Clint Eastwood's Tightrope and Heartbreakers, both from 1984. Numerous TV credits. She was on Falcon Crest from, as Vicky Giaberti from 1981 to 1983. She was the lead on the crime series Lady Blue from 1985 to 1986. She was in Atlas Shrugged Part 2 from 2012, as well as guest roles on the series Jane the Virgin and Grey's Anatomy. Since 2007, she has operated her own acting studio workshop, J-Rose Studio in L.A. She's also written a book called Shut Up and Dance, The Joy of Letting Go of the Lead on the Dance Floor and Off. That was published in 2011. Um, I quite enjoyed her for not the reasons you would think. I think she filled the role nicely, but I enjoyed those reasons too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, she's kind of served up for the slaughter there at the end. Uh, or as, as you know, we're getting to the end. But uh, but served a, a valuable function, you know, kind of one of the early examples of besides Friday the 13th, the year earlier of, OK, well, you know, you you get promiscuous, then bad things might happen, whether or not, you know, we discussed that at length back in the Friday the 13th season, whether that's a an intentional message or just a, a byproduct of the distraction. Uh it is what it is, but it certainly became a slasher trope over time. Yeah, it definitely became intentional because people watched Halloween and didn't understand it. <laughs> I think her character may have introduced a, a new idea, which is if you dance provocatively with your boyfriend's little brother and then kiss him in a graveyard, 
you know, bad shit will happen. I found that whole relationship between them a bit odd. So maybe that was her just recompense. I don't know. Yeah, she does have like a really creepy line or something about when, when he's kissing her. It's like it's not like your brother. It's like, wait, what? Yeah, was, no, it's uh, she was kind of fucking toxic, okay? Because like that whole thing, what that was, she was like, oh my god, let's totally play a prank on your brother who is my boyfriend. But like when he walks up, we're gonna be making out. It wouldn't that be so funny? And first of all, like that's not a funny prank. Um, <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> So funny. <laughs> and then she actually just starts kissing him and is like, <laughs> you should give your brother some pointers. <laughs> and it's like, don't say, okay, ew. No guy wants to be like, yeah, please compare me to my brother. But like, also it's already problematic from the fact that she's like, wouldn't that be so funny? It's like, you just, you want to, you want to bang his brother. Like, let's be real. That may yeah, be bigger than two 400-pound twins who make pig squeals and kill people. I don't know. That's true. Also, her, also the little brother is probably like, yeah, it's going to be really funny when my brother beats the shit out of me. Right. Like, how, how, does she, how did she think that was going to go? That he was going to be like, what? How could you? And then she was going to go, ha, ha, it's just a prank, bro. And then, like. You'd be like, oh, you're right. That's hilarious. What the fuck? Didn't quite work out that way. But also, without his glasses, I still don't... Like, how did he mistake that really large man in a bright red flannel for his brother that was half his size and not dressed like that? Yeah, I can't see for shit. But I'm pretty sure that if I was like my brother, if I was like, oh, here he comes, <laughs> I wouldn't mistake, you know, fucking that. That's it's like, a oh, apt comparison, actually. Like, if, if, yeah, like, it's like, if somebody that, is that twice K, is your like, brother's side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah or, or is that KT or Andre the Giant? Like, it's not the same. I'm not sure. And then we had Ralph Seymour as Daniel. He's an American film stage and TV actor. Began his career in theater, like most of these folks did, starring on Broadway in Equus. His early film credits include Underground Aces, Long Shot, Backroads, Just Before Dawn. Of course, that's our covering here. He also had supporting roles in Killer Party from 1986, Empire of the Sun from 1987, and Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman from 1988. Uh, that Echis by Peter Schaffer, that's the uh, play that Daniel Radcliffe did after Harry Potter, where the main character uh, gets naked to have sex with a horse. Or something like that. Fun fact. Horse fucking on Broadway. If you want to see Harry Potter fuck a horse on Broadway, it, then I'm sure it's out there somewhere. There's probably somebody took a pocket video of it. There's probably not film of uh, Ralph Seymour naked 
on stage. I think that's just our teaser line that we put out there for the this episode. <laughs> you want to see Harry Potter naked fucking a horse? <sighs> and then uh, we had uh, George Kennedy as Roy McLean, uh, fucking legend. Appeared in more than a hundred film and TV productions. He played Dragline opposite Paul Newman and Cool Hand Luke in 1967, winning the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for a Role and being nominated for the corresponding Golden Globe. He received a second Golden Globe nomination for Airport in 1970. Among the notable films he had a significant role in, besides Cool Hand Luke, he was in Charade, Straight Jacket, McHale's Navy, Shenandoah, The Sons of Katie Elder, The Flight of the Phoenix, The Dirty Dozen, The Boston Strangler, Guns of the Magnificent Seven, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, The Good Guys and the Bad Guys, Airport 1975. It's the first time learning about this series of airport movies, and I can't imagine any of them are worth a fuck. Uh, Earthquake and the Iger Sanction. He's the only actor to appear in all four of the airport films. Speaking of, uh, reprising the role of Joe Petroni three times. And, of course, he also played police captain Ed Hawken in the Naked Gun series with Leslie Nielsen. And he played corrupt oil tycoon Carter McKay on the Dallas television series. And, uh... For once, like, he's a, a lawman of, of some ilk, but he uh, he actually fucking is helpful and, and actually saves the day. Where in most horror movies, you know, that hadn't become a trope where or just reality where the cops are fucking useless. Um, and but. So he actually fucking helps, you know. He he fucking shoots one of the dudes right in the back. Yeah, I was expecting any minute, you know, there's gonna be George Kennedy with a with an with an axe or a hatchet sticking out of the back, you know, his back. But it never <laughs> happened, and it surprised me. Yes, we never got our Scat Man Carruthers moment there. Uh. Yeah, I got a. I need a documentary made about how you go from winning an Academy Award, and then thirteen years later you're in this movie. Like I need, I need that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I thought he was pretty good. Obviously, you know, I think that, you know, they probably got him for like a day. You know, he's not in that much of the movie, but he was probably their big get. Also, um. This uh, airport airport franchise that you're talking shit about. The first one, because I know people want to know this. The first one um, was uh, nominated for uh, a bunch of Academy Awards, like maybe six. And uh, on a budget of 10 million, made 128. So suck it, Dan. (laughs) that movie from 10 years before i was born really showed me yes it's like fucking learn about the airport franchise damn it 
Emoji, I also have to say, you know, Academy Award to this. Remember, Cuba Gooding did Snow Dogs after Jerry Maguire. Is coming off the top rope with fucking Snow Dogs references. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, then we had Mike Kellen as Ty. He made his Broadway debut in 1949 at war in At War with the Army. He repeated that role in the film version in 1950 with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. He worked in some 50 plays and won an Obie Award for his work in American Buffalo, as well as a Tony nomination in 1956 for acting in the musical Pipe Dream. He appeared in both the film version of The Wackiest Ship in the Army in 1960 and the 1965-66 television series based on the film of the same in the same role. In 1966, he appeared in an episode of Lost in Space. Later that year, he played the lead as Chad Timpson, a reformed outlaw, protecting his challenged brother in Moonstone, an episode of the TV western Gunsmoke. He also appeared in an episode of The Twilight Zone called The 30 Fathom Grave and as a southerner in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode Night of the Owl. A real Nick at Night all-star. Absolutely. Especially if you watched it in the 80s. And then rounding out the cast, we had our killers, or killer in this case. You, you know, sometimes you have twins playing one role. So we had one guy playing two. We had John Hunsaker as the Mountain Twins, Luther and Lucas. He has two other film credits. One is called Scheme C6 from 2001. And from the year 2000, Singing. Which, uh, if he's, you know, a giant mountain hillbilly, it was probably more pronounced singing. And a chili supper. <laughs> but, you know, he was our killer. He was, he was menacing. He had big, scary, bushy eyebrows. He looked like he might fuck a chicken, you know, um. And, uh, yeah, he, we did an effective job of playing really skeevy, large, inbred twins. When did Freaky Friday come out? The, the original. It would have been like the 60s. I wish came first. 1976. It was before this. So, I was just like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, I thought, not Freaky, uh, not Freaky Friday. Ahead. That's not what I'm thinking of anyways. I'm thinking of a different Lindsay Lohan movie. Parent Trap. <laughs> yeah, I thought uh, old John uh, Hunsecker did pretty good in this. Uh, yeah, I thought the killer was a little extra creepy. You know, there's no... You know, the other slashers of this era, you know, there's a supernatural element. There's not here. He's just inbred. But, you know, he just kind of uh, sneaks right up on him. It, there were a couple of good jump scares there. I mean, not super jump scares, but, you know, he's just right up on her in the woods in the dark and she loses her shit. I thought that was 
some pretty good stuff there. Yeah, agreed wholeheartedly. Definitely a creepy killer. And then we had Katie Powell as Mary Cat Logan, the young girl who's kind of following them around, spying on them, curious about them, wants to kind of be their friend, but the rest of her super conservative backwoods, like, don't want to have no contact with the outside world family, don't really want that. Um, she was in a few movies. She was in Milk Money in 1994 as well as on the show Barnaby Jones in 1973. So she'd been at it a while at that point. um, You know, it's very similar to the uh, character of Ruby in The Hills Have Eyes, except for she's not sinister. There's the... Their family is not evil. They're just simple folks trying to protect their land. Um, And so, you know, but but she still kind of plays the similar role of this young, mischievous girl who's, you know, doesn't really have sinister intentions for these people. And, of course, ends up helping them to some degree. And then we have uh, Charles Bartlett as Vachel, the brother of uh, the the fellow from the beginning of the film that witnesses this guy getting butchered, or at least the aftermath of it, and then, you know, comes running out of the woods, stark raving to meet the new campers that are the main subjects of the movie. Uh, that was played by a dude named Charles Bartlett. A San Antonio actor who was in The Mist, which we also covered just a couple seasons ago, as well as The Lego Movie in 2014, and Babe from 1995. And then rounding it out, we had Hap Oslin and Barbara Spencer as Ma and Paul Logan of the Logan family. And that will do it for our cast shooting dates and locations. It was shot in the summer of 1980 at Silver Falls State Park in Sublimity, Oregon, just outside Salem and about an hour away from Portland, Oregon. And due to the low budget, the filming ranged from about 14 to 15 hours per day. Uh, Chris Lemon was stated as saying that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens occurred as they were filming. By his account, he and the rest of the cast were gone for the day on a trip to the Oregon coast when the eruption occurred. And the filming finally wrapped on August 9th of 1980. So, took an off day and a fucking volcano erupted. I guess they picked a good day to take a vacation. Well, that's odd. And with that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. You know, despite a fairly authentic weathered appearance, the church was actually built for the production. 
Jeff Lieberman said countless strangers showed up at the filming location on the day that the scene with Jamie Rose swimming topless was supposed to be filmed, as apparently word of the shoot got out amongst the local forest rangers. So the old, the all the old local vultures came lurching about trying to get a peek of a boob. What are you up to today? Uh, I'm trying to get a peek of a boob. <laughs> Am I wrong? Don't think so. Book was on them. She's so fair. She has ghost nipples. So it just, in the bright sunlight, couldn't even see anything. Yeah, I didn't want to say nothing, so I'm glad you did. I mean, we could also blame the lack of HD for that. Uh, this wasn't one that really seemingly been remastered. It was still pretty, pretty cool, blurry. <laughs> Apparently, several odd occurrences happened while they were shooting, particularly in the woods one evening. The lighting all went out without any explanation, leaving the cast and crew in complete darkness. After several minutes, one of the producers yelled out, let there be light, and the lights immediately came back on with no explanation. Sounds like a rib. Yeah. Would almost guarantee it was a pretty good one at that. According to Lieberman... Numerous reviews of the film implied it was inspired by Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills Have Eyes, uh, but he had not seen it either at the time of making Just Before the Dawn. So, you know, I did just mention the correlation to Ruby in Hills Have Eyes. Um, I'm going to call bullshit on the fact that this guy had not seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, especially on, that long after it was out. Come on, bud. Like, you don't, you don't have to be precious and be like, oh well, you know, we got a, you know, we got a deranged, you know, crazy, like obviously not all their killer. It's like, but I've never seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, who gives a fuck? He said he was influenced more by Ingmar Bergman when assembling some of the film's compositions, which is uh, Wes Craven definitely cited him a lot. The producers originally wanted to edit the rope bridge from the production in hopes of saving time and money, but Lieberman argued that he wanted to keep it as part of the movie as it would be a unique element that would help create more excitement and thus be more successful. He won out and the rope bridge was kept. Later during distribution, one UK poster for the movie featured artwork of the characters crossing the rope bridge. He was vindicated. The tombstones in the abandoned churchyard have the name Logan on them. The same name of the mountain family. Chris, were you about to say something about this bridge? Because it's probably worth a comment. Yeah. I, you're going you're gonna to cut the rope bridge. <laughs> How much was that fucking rope? It's like, well, we already spent all our money on George Kennedy. So you're going to have to lose the rope bridge. <laughs> that They all almost fucking legit died on shooting that scene. 
some real guerrilla filmmaking there. Apparently, the tombstones in the abandoned churchyard have the name Logan on them, so, you know, that implies that this family has been there kind of for generations. And according to the front of George Kennedy's character, Roy McLean's outpost, the movie takes place in Madison County, Oregon. No Meryl Streep and uh, Clint Eastwood here, though. Film was going to be titled The Rope Bridges of Madison County, but. <laughs> God damn it. Well, Jeff Lieberman considers this to be his personal favorite of all of his films. The uh, George Kennedy character refers to the plant he's carefully grafting as Lucille, which is apparently a reference to Cool Hand Luke. In Germany, the film was released as... Bl Annie, you want to pronounce that? Um, Blutiger Demirun. Which means bloody dusk in English. We talked about early drafts of the script. Another part of that was the another early draft had Jonathan attempting to seduce Mary Cat instead of Mary Cat flirting with him after putting on Megan's makeup. That was kind of getting the vibe he was doing that anyway, but okay. <laughs> And there's confirmation Chris Lemon almost died on the fucking rope bridge <laughs> when he fell. <laughs> that was all a shoot. But he, he he got up there and made it across. Originally, the revelation of the film's twin killers occurs when Jonathan is attacked on the rope bridge. He was to be attacked by one twin at one end of the bridge, and then he turned and struggled the other side, only to be greeted by the same massive inbred on that side. It was then that he would turn to see that there were two huge men at each end of the bridge, both who intended to kill him. If you saw that bridge, you know why that wouldn't work. The idea for the fist choke finale came about as Lieberman was trying to think of a way to kill someone that had never been done. The close-up shot of the quirky killing was done with a prosthetic oversized mouth placed on John Hunsaker and Lieberman's wife used as a stand-in for Deborah Benson. It's her fist that is used in the shot. Apparently, every time someone appears from the darkness in the woods, the crickets stop chirping just prior to their appearance. According to Lieberman, in the scene where Daniel is stabbed, the camera hanging from Ralph's neck flew upward and smacked him in the face as he fell backward to the ground. The expression of pain on his face was real. Chip a tooth that way. And break an orbital bone or a lot worse <laughs> and we mentioned earlier the twins names are Lucas and Luther that's never explicitly stated in the movie 
Apparently Richard Keel auditioned for that role, but didn't get it. Uh, the characters hitting the deer early in the movie, of course, is our omen of things to come. The sound of the crying deer is heard again in Connie's mind after her and Warren discover Jonathan's body. In the director's cut, Connie mentions the dead deer to Warren during the same scene. However, the dialogue was edited out of the theatrical cut of the film. And that will close the door on the auditorium. So how'd this movie do? It was released with a deluge of slashers. So one only knows, but we can look at the numbers. So just before dawn was um, released on November the 27th of 1981, had a budget of a million dollars. And uh, we, once again, on one of these little movies, don't know exactly how much it made. And we know that it was given like a regional theatrical release in the U.S. Um, but it doesn't appear as if it was like shown all over so there's not good numbers on what it made back it is claimed to be a flop the lieberman said that you know it was a, a disappointing box office but no actual numbers on that you can assume it lost money if he said that <laughs> yeah originally universal was going to distribute it that might have changed the fate of it a bit but instead uh, they backed out at the last minute, and a small distribution company called Picture Media stepped in. And it was... Re- Go ahead, Muji. Oh, I was going to say that you got to love that it was released in France under the title Survivance to attempt to capitalize on deliverance. <laughs> Survivance. Survivance. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. The critical response uh, was, you know, it was a little mixed. Uh, the Pittsburgh Press panned it, said the only suspense in this appalling movie lies in anticipating the who and when of the next stabbing. The director uses forest locations and full sets of dark filters that disguise the cheapness of the production. Some websites put it over. Horrornews.net called it one of the most underrated slasher flicks of all time. Uh, Ozus's Worldwide Movie Reviews awarded the film a grade C+. Stating that fans of slasher films should be drawn to the blood and gore that is so beautifully shot and not as graphic as it could have been. If not a devotee of this gore, you'll probably find it repulsive, slack, and moronic. Well, I am a devotee of the gore, friend. You know what I think needs to happen on rotten tomatoes which by the way i never think that rotten tomatoes is like the end all be all like about a movie because very often um 
you know, there's like some of the most beloved movies have terrible reviews and then some movies that nobody gives a shit about have great reviews, but they really should do some sort of a filter where you can like divide the reviews that came out like within like a year or something of the movie coming out and then the ones that have come out later. Because some of these movies are like, it's hard to get the full story on like how they're received because you'll look them up on like Rotten Tomatoes and be like, oh, it's got like an 80%. And then you're like, oh, it's because it's had 100% positive reviews. Came out in 1980, and in the last 10 years, it's been like, it's like the reverse of a review bomb. It's been like positively reviewed like 50 times, and it was all bad back then. So, yeah, fairly disliked, though uh, Lieberman had said that, you know, he he was disappointed with it financially, but happy with the critical reviews. So I I didn't see any of them here, but apparently there were some good ones because he was happy with it initially. When I was uh, clicking around looking for old Joel King, um, I did see that. And if you go on the googly and look for analysis there's actually some some pieces more recently um that people have written about this movie and it not being a piece of trash so it's probably because they got their hands on a hot little copy of this movie on home video and if you would like to do that annie can tell you how I would have to agree, because this movie was first released on VHS in September of 1983 through Paragon Video. And then it was released on DVD in 2005 from Media Blasters on their Shriek Show imprint. And that was a two-disc special edition, and it featured a director's commentary as well as a documentary on the making of the film. Um, And then once Media Blaster's rights to the film expired, it was re-released on Blu-ray and DVD by Code Red DVD in November 2013. That release is completely uncut and features a longer international version that has additional dialogue and 12 minutes of additional footage. And then most recently, a new deluxe edition Blu-ray was released from Code Red on in May of 2019, and then Kino Lorber reissued the deluxe edition Blu-ray in January of 2021. And most of those articles seem to have been from um, early to summer 2021. So th- I think that people might have bought in on that new deluxe Blu-ray and uh, decided to give it another look. Yeah, very well could have been. This was a hard one to track down on streaming. Um, There are some lesser-known sites. I think Grizz found it somewhere for free with commercials. Um, I found it on a fucking service that I'd never heard of that I was almost scared to give my credit card information to. Um, but it ended up being fine. It was Flicks. God damn it. What the fuck was it called? Flicks bus. No, that's a bus ticket app. I don't know what, what it was. Flex. Flex. It was weird. It had never heard of the service before. 
You can buy it. Flix fling. F L I N G. I was like flex flix like. And they had like a seven day free trial that I signed up for and canceled, and you know was able to watch it. I found it streaming on a channel called Real Chill that I hadn't heard of previously, but I will warn you, my TV went a little nuts after I downloaded the channel. But just uh, unplug it and plug it back in. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it looks like this Flix Fling spe- uh, specializes in hard-to-find gems and cult horror films. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to check out some of the other stuff that it might have on it. Maybe it's got something else kind of hard to find that I've been looking for. Uh, but that's that's where I found it. So we've had our discussions. We can close the door on just before dawn. But before we do that, we're, of course, going to give you our final motherfucking thoughts on 1981's Just Before Dawn. Um, this would have fit in really well with our previous slasher season. Um, it really is another kind of under-the-radar slasher from 1981, which was such a great year in horror. Uh, you forget all of the great the movies that came out in 1981 in horror. So, you know, you can see why this one flew under the radar when it's competing against the likes of Halloween 2, Happy Birthday to Me, My Bloody Valentine, uh, The Fun House from Toby Hooper, Friday the 13th Part 2, The Prowler, Graduation Day, Bloody Birthday, American Werewolf in London, The Howling, Scanners, The Beyond, etc. You know, hell of a year for horror. One of the greatest in history. So I think that's probably why we don't know more about this fun little slasher, but you you can always get me with a good little slasher. And if you deviate a little from the formula and show me something I hadn't seen, then I'll enjoy it even that much more. Never really seen one that I could recall set up in Oregon. And I think, you know, I just think it worked. I, I really liked all the elements of it. It, it, uh, it's a little primitive still for its time, but, uh, fun flick, fun flick. Give it two thumbs up. Um, it was fine. Uh, the final kill is by far the best part of the movie. Um, it it was fine. I, I I didn't think it was like awesome and super cool, but also I didn't think it was bad or anything. It was a movie that I watched. Well, going into this one blind, I came away from it thinking, you know, I could probably watch it again, which, you know, with a lot of the movies we watch, you can't. But I think it had some above average marks going for it. You know, it had a great soundtrack. You've got some pretty good cinematography. You know, there's the, we kind of talked a little bit about, oh, it was influenced by Deliverance. I didn't really get that. 
you know, I guess because we've seen so many movies obviously directly influenced by Deliverance. I think this one is kind of firmly in the slasher camp, but it feels like almost like a transitional film, you know, kind of somewhere in between all those things. Doesn't feel like a complete total slasher like we were seeing at this point, but it doesn't really feel like the the kind of Kill Billy movie we'd seen previously either. But I guess having seen it and, you know, knowing the time period it came from, I think it's a little bit unique. So I think it's definitely worth a watch. Definitely worth your time. Yeah, I think if you're like a, a slasher completionist, then this one's worth a watch. If not, then... I mean, I think it's, you know, it's fine. It's not the greatest, um, you know, it, it gets like the last, you know, 20 to 30 minutes are pretty good. Like, it's pretty action-packed. I mean, there's really not a like a point to the movie, but if you just like some, like, good old slasher fun where, like, you don't care about the plot at all, you know, you just want to see some people stalk through the woods, um, and that part of it, the last 30 minutes is pretty good. Like I said, a couple of the characters kind of lose their mind, so it gets weird. So that's interesting. You can see somebody have a tree fall on them. Um, so that's good. Uh, the first, like, part of the movie, like, is pretty plotting. Like, it's pretty slow. So, you know, I feel like there's a lot going on. I feel like the, uh, the whole plot of the movie, I mean, obviously, it's, like, just the most basic of... You know, those people are in the woods. Other people doesn't don't want them in the woods, but there's not a lot more to it after that. So, like I said, I love the slasher movie, even when it's like kind of lower tier. So I had a good time with this one. But if like you know, you're not really like a slasher completion. It's like I do not agree that this is some sort of like forgotten gem. You know, it's like it's not great, but it was entertaining enough. Yeah, I would reiterate that, you know, I'm a big fan of slashers of all kinds, especially ones from this era where they were first kind of coming to fruition. Uh, so that's mainly why I liked it. Like Moochie says, you know, if you don't if you don't like slashers, this is going to be just another movie to you. I think it uh, it did drag a little in the middle, but, you know, it, it brings it together at the end nicely. So. You appreciate that, but uh, but yeah. So those are our thoughts on this motherfucking just before dawn as we leave the eighties now. Like this is a weird thing with the story of these killbillies because you know we've we're seven episodes into this fucking thing now. We're still in nineteen eighty one, but the tit has been milked dry. So there's not gonna be any more killbilly movies of note. I'm sure I missed something, don't get me wrong, but of note, we don't get another Kill Billy film until 22 years later with 2003's Wrong Turn, and that reinvents the genre of Kill Billy movies, and we're going to be talking about that next week on Seeking Human Victims.
This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. Other music and audio clips are property of their respective.